were swimming in the in the river. I remember just putting my head up and looking up in the mountains and, and thinking, I don't even feel like I'm in a foreign country right now. It feels like I'm just swimming in, you know, just a, a river surrounded by mountains. And it felt like I was at home. And the reality of it was we really were at home. And at that moment, I had that epiphany where I felt like I belonged here. Namalochen, lovely listeners, and welcome to episode 167, a journey back to the Assyrian homeland. Cheb Nisan, our Assyrian New Year, has always been quite the festive time in the homeland. Assyrians from all over the world would fly to Erbil, drive to Duhok, to participate in the Cheb Nisan festivities. But for the last two years, following the global pandemic, no celebrations have been organized, and we've definitely felt a void. No parade... No parties, no visitors from all over the world to give us a breath of fresh air. But this year, finally, we had a Chabnisen. I can't tell you how amazing the energy was in the homeland. Hotels in Ankawa were packed with visitors. Assyrians from diaspora and from Iraq meeting each other for the first time and discovering family ties that they never knew existed. It was just a general euphoria and energy that we hadn't felt in such a long time. And I took a week off to travel throughout northern Iraq with some of these visitors, a group of young individuals coming from Australia, New Zealand, North America, and Europe who were visiting the homeland for the first time with Gishru. At the end of their two weeks, I decided to sit with a few of them to talk about their trip, their experience, and their journey back to the Assyrian homeland. Huddled around a microphone in a tiny hotel room overlooking one of the busiest streets in Ankawa, with the sound of motorcycles zooming by, I spoke with Sargon, Stephanie, Esther, Dilan, Alan, and Roxanne. Dilan is from Belgium, and he's currently finishing a master's degree in architecture. His parents are from Sapna Valley in Iraq and Silopi in Turkey. Sargon David was born and raised in Toronto, Canada, but his parents are from Kirkuk and Baghdad. He's been active in Assyrian organizations and causes since 1999 and was actually one of the founding members of the Assyrian Chaldean Syriac Student Union, also known as AXU. In 2018, he became a single father to identical twin girls via an egg donor and surrogate agreement. Stephanie Bastikis is an Assyrian born and raised in Melbourne, Australia. She's currently completing her final semester of a Bachelor of Biomedicine at the University of Melbourne and is the social media coordinator for the Assyrian podcast. It was her dream for the last few years to return to Atra, and this month she got to fulfill that dream with Gishru. Alan Mushik is a first-generation Assyrian-American from Los Angeles, California. He works as a trial attorney and litigates complex cases throughout the southwestern states. He's deeply passionate about his Assyrian community and has volunteered for several organizations and is currently the vice president for the Assyrian American National Federation. Roxanne Reyes is a first-generation Assyrian American from the metro Detroit area. She's passionate about human rights and social justice and hopes to influence those in the diaspora to preserve their culture and heritage. And finally, Esther Elia who is a visual artist currently working on her Master's of Fine Arts in Painting at the University of New Mexico. 
Her work's been displayed at the de Young Museum, San Francisco Arts Commission Gallery, the Facebook offices, and Reconstructed Mac. Her ambition is to create a contemporary Assyrian art aesthetic and movement. Before we get to this roundtable, I want to remind you to make sure you subscribe to the podcast and rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Also, if you know someone who should be on the podcast, please reach out to us. You can find more information about nominating future guests on our website. This episode is sponsored by the Ushana Partners, a husband and wife real estate team. Are you considering purchasing or selling a home in Arizona or California? John and Rita are available to help make your next real estate decision into a seamless transaction. Contact the Ushanas at 209-968-9519 and get to know them a little bit more by checking out their website, theushanapartners.com. And now, here's a look into our journey back to the Assyrian homeland. So welcome everybody to this Journey Home Roundtable. Thank you so much for being with us. How about you go around the table and tell us who you are? Uh, hi everyone. Hi all of the Assyrian Podcast listeners. I'm Stephanie. I'm from Melbourne, Australia. I was born in Melbourne and this is my first time returning to Atla. Hello, my name is Roxanne. I'm from Detroit, Michigan. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Alan Mushag and I live in uh, Los Angeles, California. I'm an attorney in uh, California and um, I'm also the Vice President of the Certain American National Federation. Hi, I'm Esther Ilya. I currently live in New Mexico and uh, was born in Chile, California. Shlama, my name is Sargon David and I was born in Toronto here on the first trip to Atra. I helped uh, found the Assyrian Canadian Student Union back in 1999, and I'm happy to be here. Hello, my name is Dylan. I come from Belgium, and it is my first time in Iraq. Just wanted to also quickly mention, for those that don't know, I actually work with Miriam at the Assyrian Podcast. I'm the social media person. That's who you can thank for all those wonderful stories and posts on our Assyrian podcast Instagram page and Facebook page. Thank you. Thank you, you, Stephanie. Thank you all for being here with me. So just to give our listeners some context to visualize where we are and what we're doing, we're actually sitting in Dilan and Alan's room at the hotel in the middle of Ainkawa in Erbil. It's It's towards the end of their journey home. They've been here for around 10 days, all of them. They all came with Gishru, uh, an organization I'm sure you're all familiar with. And if you're not, then go ahead uh, to Instagram and Facebook and search for Gishru. But essentially, I'm surrounded now by all these people who were born in the diaspora and who came home for the first time. And I want to ask you, for people who were born in the diaspora, what made you want to come visit the homeland? So I'll I'll start. Um, I think in the beginning of getting involved with the Syrian community um, back in the diaspora, I already had an immediate like a desire to do it because I was so you know I, I went to college in Arizona. There's not many you know Syrians when I first went there, and so slowly the community started developing, and I started developing that love for our community and working with them. And you know I got involved in this uh, organization called uh, the Syrian American Cultural Organization of Arizona, and you know I started working with them and I. For a short period, for about two years, I was the president of that organization. And then 
slowly throughout the diaspora, you start having, you know, I don't want to call them issues, but you start getting into let's call them conflicts internally. And I think every every one of us has experienced those. And it kind of discourages you and it kind of takes away from your motivation because you're so focused on those issues that that you get involved. And I, and I really wanted to go back home to fuel that fire, you know, get a connection with, with our homeland and bring it back to, to, to fuel that fire. And, um, and you know, again, uh, have that desire to work for our community again. And I feel like, coming back home and seeing what our people, I mean, the struggles and the challenges that they have, um, it really does. I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm excited to get back home. I'm excited to have that motivation and that excitement to, to work for our nation back in the sport. Um, I think for me, it's uh, similar to Alan's experience. When I started first getting more involved in the Assyrian community, it sort of planted the seed for me of this desire to return to Atra, especially being born in diaspora, Everything that I know about the homeland is um, through stories and photos. Um, I haven't, I hadn't had the opportunity up until now to create my own memories in our land, and I feel that it was something that it's like, it's hard to articulate, but it's like a gravitational pull almost, where it's like, it's just like something uh, that kept coming back to me that I need to eventually go. I need to go, and I sort of had things that kept getting in the way. And I said to myself, "This year has to be the year, regardless of what's going on. Um, I can't wait any longer." Uh, and it's also a similar reason. I recently have been appointed, um, sort of like to lead the uh, Assyrian Aid Society of Australia's Melbourne branch, and I think it was really important for me to actually come here, see the work that the Aid Society does, see the way that our people living here have conversations with our people in the homeland so I can be of better use when I go back to the diaspora and work for our people. It's uh, Sargon here. I echo what Alan and Steph said. For myself, uh, growing up in Toronto, I used to ask uh, my parents and other Assyrians that were from Iraq, why do we not have a nation? Why do we not have a country? Why are we stateless? So those questions uh, started coming up when I was very young. And then I started uh, researching Assyrian history from a both secular and biblical perspective. And then came activism and being involved in the community. So there is always this uh, hope to come one day. And one of the challenges is that, you know, for those that uh, left uh, the homeland, they uh, speak of it in a way that implies that if you do try to go, it might be of a concern for safety, those sorts of things. So it, it, there isn't really a, so much of a positive spin in the feedback I've heard. However, the more active I was in the community, the passion was always there. So when the opportunity came up, like Steph said, things kept coming uh, in the way to, per to prevent me from coming. But I said, it's now or never. I have to make this happen, and I'm glad I did. I kind of feel the same way as most of you were. Uh, when I came back to the homeland for the first time in over 30 years, it was more of a now or never opportunity. And I'm curious to see what your first feelings were upon arrival. What was your, like, as the plane was landing, did you feel anything? I think uh, I could probably speak for a lot of us. Um, there was obviously some missile strikes notable before we got here, maybe about two weeks before. So there was a lot of anxiety and uncertainty 
And uh, I'll admit, you know, we were scared coming in. I think, you know, if you disagree, please speak up. But we were worried. You know, we didn't know everything we've heard about Iraq. We're we're, we're worried about it. But honestly, since I've been here, I've there hasn't been one moment where I've been worried or scared or uh, feel like my safety is a concern. And I'll be honest with you, there's been times in L.A. where... I'll, you know, I'll walk through certain neighborhoods and I'll put my watch in my pocket because I don't know, you know, what's going to happen. And and I, I definitely feel like in certain parts of back home are definitely more dangerous than here. And so that, that was the first feeling. But, you know, throughout the entire trip, those feelings change. You know, I'm not, you know, I'll admit I'm not a very emotional person, but this trip has been one of the most emotional trips for me. And it's not all positive emotions either. There's, you know, there's a lot of negative emotions, a lot of positive emotions. It's literally been an emotional roller coaster from the get go. And um, and I think we all need, you know, I, I think we all, we all we can all agree that we will go back and digest a lot of this information and these feelings that we felt while we were here and um, and come back with something positive. I really think it will flourish into something positive, a new perspective on on our nation and how we how we perceive ourselves individually and as a nation as well. Roxanne, what were your first feelings? Um, so leading up to the trip, I had so much going on at home and work and everything, and I feel like all of it was not real up until I actually was seeing Iraq from the plane. And um, it kind of hit me as soon as we walked outside and it was hot and you can like smell the sand or the dust or whatever is in the area it's just a, I don't know it's not a bad smell it's just a different smell so when I walked when I walked outside I just thought I thought about my parents specifically because all of my all of the portrayal of this country has been from what my parents have said and what my aunts and uncle have said aunts and uncles have said and you know I walked outside and I just was thinking of them and, and thinking to myself all right, this is it. Like, I'm finally here. All this time has led up to this. You know, I didn't have any expectations because I was just so open-minded about what could possibly happen on this trip. What could I see on this trip? How am I going to feel on this trip? Um, For me, it was very, um, I guess it was a bit unique where I actually had no anxiety coming into the trip, um, which sort of surprised me, but I felt very safe, like even in the process of traveling here. I don't know if it's because I already knew people like Miriam, like I knew I had people on the ground or what it was, but I felt like I just felt like everything would work out because there was so much that was in the way of me being able to come at this point. And it just like somehow I I was able, even with university, actually, like I almost nearly didn't get um, special consideration to be able to sit my assessments later and this sort of thing. And it all somehow worked out. So I felt like there's no way that this was by coincidence. I meant to be coming here right now. So I felt very comfortable in the process of returning. And then when the plane landed and I first stepped out, what was really interesting to me was like, like I'm a talker and I was completely lost for words I was in it was like it was so surreal I actually could not say anything for the first like two hours that I was here but what was really interesting was even though of course I I've actually hardly even even traveled outside of Australia the first time since now that I had been overseas I was three years old but what was really bizarre was when I was looking around I felt like I'd seen everything before it didn't feel foreign to me um, I felt like it felt like home. It was really, really interesting. So I'll ask you a two-part question now. First part is, what did you think of the homeland before you arrived? And what was the biggest surprise for you during your visit? 
I think growing up in the U.S., there's all, always been kind of a, these disparate views of Iraq, specifically of the Assyrian community that I knew personally from Iraq, um, or Iraqis, uh, like the people that I knew living in the U.S., um, and their warmth, <laughs> their humanity, you know, and then this media portrayal of what Iraq was and the same images repeated over and over and over again every time there was any kind of news about um, Iraq, the Middle East, etc. Um, and so that has always had a cognitive dissonance and when you're exposed to the same images over and over again, you just, they sink in. And even though, you know, with the people, I knew it couldn't be this scary place that was tinted in green, you know? <laughs> um, and so I think kind of re echoing what Alan was saying, the biggest surprise was how safe I felt here, um, how normal everything felt here. And then specifically seeing People, people who looked like my loved ones everywhere um, just gave me a, a sense of home and safety and um, that I that I've never experienced and and it's it's been wonderful. I want to add to that. That's cool. I agree one hundred percent with Esther. Um, one of the things that I was a little surprised about, or I guess I would say like pleasantly enlightened with was how comfortable I felt. I didn't expect to just be able to walk around and like, you know, speak Sudeth and, and just, you know, walk into the hotel and see another person working there and greet them and in the language that I know. Um, there have been parts of the U.S. I've traveled to where I'm like, eh, I might be the only person here that's not a white American, you know what I'm saying? So there are certain parts where we've been to where I'm like feeling very just comfortable. And I'm like, it's like I'm around my family, even though I don't have a blood relative in the room. So. Before coming, I think I had like one image in my mind was that Iraq was still beyond because of the geography and the political and the local politics. But afterwards, when I came here, what I realized is that in fact, Iraq compared to the country where I come from, is in fact in a similar situation. And I just realized that I had the image that Iraq was like a rural-based country. In fact, going here, what I could see and observe was that there were the same settings could be observed, whether in a Western country or in Iraq, between the urban and the rural. In fact, here we're in Erbil, and I can see the same components that I will see in another metropolitan city in Western Europe, for instance. And when I went to um, to Nala, for instance, in a rural area, and when I go to um, a rural area in Western Europe, I could see the same components and this, and similar level of uh, urbanization. So for me, now I just realized that Iraq is just a continuation of my life back in a Western context. Uh, and just to kind of add to what Dylan's saying, I remember there was a moment when we were in Nala and we were swimming in the in the river. I remember just putting my head up and looking up in the mountains and, and thinking, I don't even feel like I'm in a foreign country right now. It feels like I'm just swimming in, you know, just a, a river surrounded by mountains. And it felt like I was at home. And 
the reality of it was we really were at home. And at that moment, I had that epiphany where I felt like I belonged here. Um, just adding to what Alan's saying, when we swam in the river, that was a, also a very pivotal moment for me. Um, my family, actually, I have, actually have no uh, direct ancestry in Iraq. My family was originally from Hakkadi and only was temporarily, I would say, for about 20 years in Iraq. And then post-Semele Massacre moved to Kabul. So I've grown up on all these stories about the Kabul River and my family swimming in it, my grandmother learning how to swim in it, all of the cousins, everyone playing and seeing pictures of that. So it was always like a dream for me to be able to swim in a river in our country. And I got to do that. It was just like, it was everything. Yeah. I want to talk about the river. <laughs> the river was one of the best times of the trip. I just want to add when I was, so the water was freezing. Uh, I noticed when people were walking in like, oh my God, it's so cold. People putting their feet in, people really like hesitant to get in. And then a couple people start like, you know, just like immersing their bodies. And I'm looking around and just making decisions by the second that I'm moving my body. And I'm like, oh, I'll put my feet in. Maybe I'll put like further up to the knees. And as I'm walking in, I'm like, you know what? F it. I'm just going <laughs> to completely immerse myself into this water. Hey. Didn't plan on getting my hair wet at all. I was just like, you know, got to keep, got to maintain. Went all the way in and immediately I was like freezing and I was like, this is the greatest feeling ever. Yeah. Because it was like you were releasing any kind of like fear or, or like hesitation of it's too cold or I don't want to get my hair wet. I don't want to get my clothes wet. It's yeah. like, no, you're here in the moment. Enjoy it. This is like what our ancestors did. This is what our parents always talked about doing take advantage of it and just do it. And I had not a single like ounce of regret about it. Yeah, it almost was like a cleansing or something. Yeah, I don't it's know like how medicine, to explain yeah. Right? I don't know how to explain it. Yeah. And just to add context for all the listeners that don't know, like in the homeland, women like we swim in our clothing. So like Roxanne and I were out there in like <laughs> jeans and t shirts, completely drenched, but like probably like one of the best moments of our lives. Yes. Yeah. yeah it was. It was amazing. I thought you were all crazy for getting in there. It was really cool. <laughs> I would do it a million times. Me too. I just had my feet in there and that was sufficient for me. But I think Dylan has a perspective on this. What do you think? It's not on a river, it's huh. on, on another idea. Yeah, tell us. So something that I was fearing be before coming was in regards to my level of assimilation within a Western context. And coming here and discuss, you know, meeting all these uh, people, whether from from Dur, from Erbil, or from the mountains, from the villages and so on, was that they could barely identify or identify the country, my host country, which is Belgium. And I could just, you know, be part of them. So I was fearing this assimilate, in fact, my Western assimilation. And coming here, discussing with people, exchanging with them, sleeping in their houses, I was just part of their families. They could Oh, sorry to interrupt. So you were feeling like you were you had become too Western to be able to connect with the people here? This is what I was fearing. But in fact, my experience here revealed to be different. People could not identify that I was coming from another country. They were asking me, in fact, they, were, they could identify where my accent comes from, where my dialect comes from. And they Your Surat accent. Yes. And they saw that I was from this specific region. They really, like people could grasp that I was from Zaho. Multiple people could identify that. And they really saw that I was a local. But in fact, I was a Belgian. I was not a local. And for me, this is like a nice experience that whether I was born, you know, in another country or born here, at the end, people, just by speaking the same language, I was just part of them. I was 
I was not a foreigner. This actually brings me very nicely into my next question, which is, did you guys make any connections that you did not expect to make, either to places or people? I would definitely say to people to the extent that I did. I knew I would want to have conversations. I was a bit anxious actually only about my ability in Surat. Like I know how to speak in Surat, but it's not very fluent. And I was a bit worried that I wouldn't be able to form as meaningful of connections with a language barrier. But even with the people that didn't know as much English and my Surat wasn't 100%, we formed very, very close bonds. And that was a really beautiful experience for me. I just wanted to highlight one specific example. Um, out of all the places we've been to, I felt the most at home at in Nala um, because they speak the exact same dialect as me as well. And um, I, when I think Esther was originally saying that she could see the faces of her own family here, I almost felt a similar experience where in the little girls I could see myself because they were saying, you know, Shalacha or Bashal, and that's like how we, like Tiaraya dialect, how we speak. And it was the first time I had seen people outside of my actual blood relatives speaking the same way I speak. And it was like looking at a, in a mirror almost. One of the girls, when I told her that, I said, I said to her in Assyrian that I say Bashal for house as well. She said to me back, she said back to me, oh, well, you're my relative then. She goes, next time when you come, you have to stay at my house. So it was really beautiful. I would say that when uh, we went to visit various Syrian schools, the school that I had a, a, a connection with was the one in Semele. Um, we had gone to the archaeological site in Semele where the massacre happened in 1933 by the Iraqi government. And that was very difficult to be there. And then we were also at the Assyrian school in Semele. And, and when I spent time there and, and met with the staff, the principal, the teachers, and some of the children from different age groups, I felt a strong connection with uh, one little girl who I was lucky enough to take a picture with. Um, she reminded me very much of my, of my own children. I have twin girls, and I, I could see them in her in some way. Although it's different, yet it was it was familiar. So she was in her uniform, and she was so happy to be at school, and so happy to to see these Assyrians coming from all over the world. So Semele was such a special place, and it had quite an effect on me. That's beautiful. Before coming, it was a big question for me that I started to investigate through different ways. One of them was to, to go live in my relative's house abroad in Canada. I wanted to understand how I could reconnect to, to other Assyrians, or not to reconnect, but how I could, how Assyrians were going to strive living in a diaspora. Now coming here to Iraq, going to villages, to schools, to, to places where Assyrians are currently living, for me, I just realized that in fact, blood ties are not so important. What matters are the common interests, whether it is the Assyrian identity, whether it is the the field, you know, the field where people are working or studying in. I just want to say that uh, I want to expose Dylan right now and just say that he has made so many connections in every village, in every place. He's, he's always speaking to people and making friends, um, and it's been so beautiful to watch. 
and in a way that's really important because we are here to build connections and bridges between our life in diaspora and our life here in Atra and the way to preserve whatever memories you have made here is through these connections that you've established so that's great you know we have to hear that so maybe that means that you're ready to come back and live here maybe I'm coming back with him and just going to be <laughs> friends with all his friends I think <laughs> yeah I want to second that Dylan, Dylan already said to me that he'll share his family with me yeah, yeah. so I can't wait to come back with him as well Stefani is exposing another part that I was not expecting in each villages or in each village and each city we visited I was related to a person whether it was like a close relative or a distant relative or a friend of the family of my family I was always finding a connection to people and as a matter of fact some people with who I shared this trip you know this journey back in the homelands we just realized that we had some connections not directly but through cousins we're all each other's cousins <laughs> so actually fun fact i am related to dylan in that his my manager at work is his like second or third cousin or something like that yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> so don't tell her but i'm quitting my job soon i guess she'll find out when she listens to the podcast <laughs> sorry <laughs> but i really you you've inspired me actually to quit my job because i've realized that although i live here I don't take advantage of the fact that I live here enough and that I don't I've, I've stopped interacting with locals because I'm too busy working right. I need to get out there and I need to swim in the river again and I need to talk to everybody here locally and build these new connections and it makes me really happy that you guys were able to experience all that and build on that and and remind me of it even if I've lived here for three years you've reminded me of what I wanted at the beginning and that's why Dylan don't tell your cousin but I'm probably quitting my job I won't, I won't. <laughs> just, just follow Dylan around he'll introduce you to everybody yeah I'll just rely on Dylan <laughs> so my next question to you what's one thing that you would take home with you whether it's a uh, a souvenir a trinket a symbolic thing or a more emotional intangible thing one of the biggest things that I like experienced on this trip was the connection I have to my parents. I keep mentioning my parents because I see them getting older, I'm getting older. My grandparents are like, you know, I've lost both my, my grandpas, but still have my grandmothers. But, you know, like they're getting older and I'm just thinking about my connection to my parents and I feel that while they weren't here with me, um, they're at home, you know, they're, they're in Michigan. But I feel like when I was here, I, I just couldn't wait to tell them or, or bring back a story to them of, hey, I went swimming in the river. Hey, I went and saw this. Or I got to I got to see my, my family's village. I actually went on a day that the trip, the whole group was going to a, um, a site. And I actually decided to opt out that day and, and take a, a sidetrack um, visit to the village of Araden. And I was just so emotional that day thinking about my parents my grandparents and where they're coming from where they have come from um, all the stories they shared with us I remember when I was younger growing up we had this like back backlit photo of, of Araden and it was always hung up somewhere in the house and I remember my siblings and I would always kind of trash talk and just be like oh like it's so you know it's, why do we have to have that up in the house like it's so old tacky. whatever yeah it's so tacky whatever and now I got there and I was 
in tears, you know, like, wow, I'm actually seeing this for the first time. And my parents haven't been here in decades and they haven't seen it in a long time. And to just be there, like, I want to take back all of my emotions and my feelings and my first impressions of what I saw. I want to bring it back to them and kind of remind them because they haven't been here in so long. I want to remind them, you know, like, this is what it was like. This is what I saw. I saw walnut trees. I saw a pomegranate tree. I saw butterflies all over the village. I saw, I just saw so many things and I couldn't wait to bring it back to them. I want, I want to give them a little bit of that, of of that comfort, of that like nostalgia for them because they had to move, they had to assimilate. And now they're so Americanized that, you know, they still speak the language and they're still, they're still very much Assyrian, but imagine not coming home to where you come from for like four years. You know, that would be, that would be tough. I feel like you'd forget so many things. Um, And I also want to bring back some of the stuff that I learned and the experiences I've had and like even the routes we've taken, different things we've seen. I want to bring it back to them and bring them here again. I want to bring them back with me and say, this is what I saw. You didn't even get to see it. There were certain days where my mom would text me and I would just let her know, we're going to go see Diana. We're going to go to this place and this place. Have you seen it? Never seen it in my life. And I think, honestly, at this point, I may have seen more areas of this place than my parents have, even though they lived here for a long time. I think it's very interesting what you mentioned because it echoes a lot of my own personal experience. So as most of our listeners probably remember, I'm one of the returnees here. And when I told my parents I was moving here, they thought I was just crazy. But as I started experiencing things and sharing them with my parents, they kind of started understanding that, oh, I didn't have all these experiences. Now I'm getting them. They had those experiences. And it creates this special link and bond between us and our parents now. Um, and then, yes, and then that want, makes them want to come back and visit again and reconnect with their own land. Uh, and that's yeah. a very sweet and important thing, yeah. Yeah, it makes me really emotional thinking about, like, that connection because there is, like, somewhat of a disconnect that you don't really realize exists until you're here between your parents and you because, you know, it's not, I was, it's not like I was born here and then moved. I was born in America, and that's all I know. I don't know what their life was like. So, yeah, I feel like I didn't know about the disconnect until I actually came here and was like, wow, I there's like just some I can't explain it or put it in words, but some things just clicked for me. And now there's a certain connection I feel I have with my parents when I go back. And I just think it's really valuable. I don't know how how else you can really fill that gap. Yeah, I keep saying like with what echoing what Roxanne saying, I keep saying it was like the missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Like as soon as we came back. I feel like you must all share the same sentiment. Everything clicked. It was that part that was missing. You finally understood why you felt that way, you know? So I think for me, um, what, I, what I'm what i taking back is for the people that are involved with, you know, Assyrian organizations or advocacy back in um, the United States or diaspora, wherever they live, is by coming here, it almost, that experience that you get gives you a little bit more credibility. So like... Going back home, I, you know, I've talked to U.S. representatives. I've talked to state representatives. I've actually spoken on, like, when I lived in Arizona, I spoke on this, you know, the Arizona Senate floor and the House of Representative floor about issues that we're dealing with back home. And I think actually being here, you can explain to them, I've actually been there. I've actually experienced these things. I've been to these villages. I've met with these people. I went to Somalia. I actually, you know, I, I don't know if you guys saw it, but I actually saw human bones in the 
in the ground. And I have a photo that I can pull out my phone and say, here's a photo of human remains from almost 100 years ago from what happened to our people. And you have that sense of credibility that you take back out, take back when you're, you know, when you're advocating or working for our nation back in diaspora when you're sending this message. Um, one of the things that I was hoping I would bring back and that I definitely will be bringing back is um, new visual, a wealth of visual imagery. I, um, I've been working on paintings like commemorating and uh, creating imagery of the contemporary Assyrian identity. And it's been through family photos and things I've seen within like how Assyrians do life within the diaspora. And so coming here was really important to continue to document how contemporary Assyrians are living um, within the homeland context. And so bringing, bringing back imagery with me uh, yes. to continue to paint and make art. Uh, yes, that, we need yeah, more Esther art. Documents that. <laughs> we need another exhibit. <laughs> Sargon, what do you say? So what I'm taking back from my trip to Atra is hope. Hope is, for me, it's not physical, obviously, but it's tangible, it's real. And being here has given me so much more hope than I already had. It's beyond measure. I can't quantify it. So when I do return to Canada, I will share the hope that I experienced with my stories, with my videos, with my pictures. I've already had family and friends reach out to me to say, when you come back, we want a session, we want a debrief, we want a weekend in the afternoon for us to come to your home and, and go through things, pull out a map and show us. So hope definitely is the thing that I'm bringing back. But also, I want to convey to my friends and family back home that this is something that can easily be done. You can come here and see and touch and feel everything I did. Smell, taste, drink, and touch. Um, I had the privilege of touching things that are very ancient at the Khinis archaeological site where I put my hand on the stone rocks uh, when we went to the Rabban Hermas monastery and I did the same thing. I put my hand and I touched everything, the churches, the sanctuaries, the rock crevices, uh, crevices if you will. So there was also Alpush also where there was so much history. I know it is an Assyrian Christian town, but it has a pre-Christian history. When Athra Kado, who's a native Alqush resident, talked about the old Alqush town that we went to, and he said that this is the, the Sina uh, area, which comes from Sin, as in Ramsin or Naramsin, which was the ancient Assyrian moon god. Uh, and that's connected to the mountain that overlooks Alqush. The whole backdrop of Alqush is Assyrian history, our first faith. So I, I, I wanted to convey that to the listeners. When you speak of hope, what hope is it? Hope for what? It's hope for, first, that this is a visit that you can do. Second of all, that the people, the Assyrians here, there is a future for them. And third, there are opportunities for you to 
help and contribute in meaningful ways. Whether you're coming, whether you actually stay here, or you're providing assistance in another way, financial, uh, so that those that are here have better opportunities, better resources, better support. In what way has your identity as an Assyrian changed after your visit? I feel very proud to be an Assyrian. When I was younger, I, I didn't really feel that way. I didn't feel that connected to it. But after meeting so many of the people on this trip and meeting so many people in the different villages and just seeing how much we have in common, all of the you know, all of the pain and suffering that we've endured, but we still managed to like sing songs and laugh together and eat wholesome foods together and and just get along so well and have like a really deep connection. There's nothing that can like damp not dampen, there's nothing that can like overshadow what what being a Syrian is. And I think all the other things that get in the way, whether it's, you know, politics or religion or tribal you know the tribal conversations all that stuff for me it just doesn't even come it doesn't even show up for me anymore it's just a syrian um i just feel like living in diaspora it was really really difficult to gauge how alive the assyrian identity was or the assyrian community was i knew what it looked like in diaspora but i didn't i didn't know how that connected with assyrians in the homeland and being being here it's just becomes so obvious how alive um, the Assyrian identity is here and how um, it's thriving so much more than I thought it would. And I didn't know to, to that that's something I would see. And how did that impact your Assyrian identity? It just, I think it gave me a lot of strength um, because we, we hear the bad stories. We hear about the oppression. We hear about the previous genocides and, and attacks against us. And so to see even a place, I remember the first the moment we came into Ankawa and saw Surat on businesses, like that was something I never knew to expect, never thought was, was something that existed in the world. And so I think the strength of that and um, that people are speaking, that people are celebrating, and that um, gathering together um, as Assyrians, as an Assyrian community, is uh, it offers me a lot of deep-rooted strength as an Assyrian myself. So we've heard strength, we've heard pride. Dylan, what, what, how has it changed your identity as an Assyrian? For me, I think I, I recognize a richness, a certain diversity within the Assyrian identity that I was maybe not not aware of. I mean, in my country, I was in contact with a Syrian coming from the same villages, or at least from the same region. So I was, I was surrounded by people speaking more or less similar dialects, having similar ideologies, having similar ideas. Here, I could get to know people coming from the diaspora, but also from locals, that the Syrians are diverse. And we're here the the example we have some people benefiting from other cultures americans greek but we have also people assyrian but who were born outside their homelands and we have also people who were who were born here that moved to another country and came back here so assyrian are are, are diverse assyrian are diverse 
Um, for me, I've echoing the sort of sentiment around being proud of being a Syrian and that sort of thing. I've always been proud to uh, be an Assyrian. But um, I think before coming here, a lot of it was rooted in our ancient history as well. Like, you know, because we talk about the greatness of the empire and how old we are as a civilization, as a group of people and that sort of thing. And I think now that I've come here, what makes me so proud to be a Syrian is in our ancient history. It's our modern present day people here in the homeland. That's what makes me so proud because exactly what everyone else is saying, the resilience of our people here, how loving and welcoming and open they are in spite of everything they've endured. That's what makes me proud to be an Assyrian. For myself, it's uh, actually the word identity itself. I didn't know it in Assyrian until I got here. So I learned the word and it's heyayuta. Um, my new friend Esther interviewed me on the side for one of her own projects and she asked me about Assyrian identity and I said well first of all I, I learned the word for identity um, but it, uh, my identity as an Assyrian has been enriched it's been enhanced and it's uh, been uh, enlightened in a way that uh, is difficult to convey there's so many layers of richness from the secular, from the religious, from the cultural, and you know, we're we're at least in my experiences, and I did say this earlier, we're given this narrative uh, that's negative. Like, why would you want to go back? You know, why is it that you keep asking questions about the places that your parents lived? They struggled. They had difficulties. Yes, be that as it may, and I'm not dismissing it, but. That was their experience, and that was a different time. Life goes on, and as long as you're someone who's passionate about connections to your ancestry, this is really the trip that, that people should be making. And Esther talked about seeing signage in, uh, in, in Atra, and as soon as um, I left the airport and came into Ankawa, that's the first thing I saw. It was like, you know, almost four o'clock in the morning and store after store, uh, plaza after plaza, all the roads. I just kept seeing signage in Assyrian and it wasn't a token signage because we learned when we went to uh, St. John the Baptist Church uh, when we met with Mar Awa, the new patriarch of the Assyrian Church of the East, I understood at that meeting that in Ankawa, the law actually states that the signage has to be in Assyrian. It's it's written in the law, and that's beautiful. I just want to add on to something that Sargo mentioned that I think is very important um, about how we've heard the fear and and we've heard the why, reasons of as to why you quote unquote shouldn't come back. But I think the most important thing to come is to come back because obviously we have intergenerational trauma from everything that we've experienced as a people. And I think part of the way of breaking out of that cycle is to return and to form these new positive experiences here. I think that that's why also it's been a very emotional experience for myself personally because I am in the process of breaking out of that um, generational trauma. Uh, and yeah, I think it's really, really important to come back for that reason. Do any of you have more uh, to share about how this trip has impacted you more, more personally on a deeper level? I, I did have one experience that I shared with a group um, earlier, but um, it was one, one thing I wasn't even expecting, but as our plane was landing into Erbil, uh, into the airport, I just thought, because my family was actually from Iran, which there's only 
maybe a handful of people that are from Iran. Most of the people are either from Turkey or Iraq. But for me, it was, you know, I I just remember thinking like, Assyrians all at some point came from this area, whether they lived in Turkey, Iran, or you know Jordan or Lebanon or whatever. At some point, we're all here, and this can go back th- thousands of years ago. And I, I I just remember thinking, I don't remember when, I don't know when my family left this part of you know the world and, and started dispersing, but I know that based off of recent history, I'm the first person to return. And so once that plane landed on you know in here. Uh, I just thought it was so beautiful thinking like I'm the first person to actually come back after, you know, my forefathers, you know, ancestors left at whatever point it was. And so, you know, I, I thought that was very special and uh, very meaningful. Yeah. One of the things, um, it's not, it, it's personally, but it's also kind of like just on a scale of like society, I want to say. Um, Nala, I think changed all of our perspectives in a lot of different ways, you know, th- I can't even really say how many ways it could, but it was it was crazy because all I could think was back home, all it is is work, 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 work. That is all we do. And I, everyone in this room is like shaking their heads. Like that is what we do. We, we live to work. And going to, to Nala, going to these other villages too, and just seeing them, you know, actually living. They are making wholesome meals. They are like looking at the mountains. They are spending time with their loved ones. They are doing things that are not sitting in front of a laptop. And it just kind of breaks my heart because there's so much to life and we're we're just conditioned to always work and always be like, you know, hustling or, or like, you know, getting things done and checking off our to-do list. And it's like, we don't have time to live. We don't have time to like appreciate our family members and our friends and connect with others in our community. And that really struck me. And it's it's been on my mind a lot lately. Um, and so that was, you know, that was one of the things for me too that I just... I'm it, it that's one of the ways it changed my life where I'm like I need to look at this this the way I work and the way I look at you know the the working life or or the hustle I don't, I don't even like that word the hustle but that that is what it is cuz all of us have to like basically work to live um so that's one thing maybe you want to change when you get back home find more of a work life balance I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm just looking at my life in terms of, you know, I'm 29 years old. I'm still very young, but I've spent all of my 20s working so hard to like live, you know, make a life for myself. With the pandemic, a lot of people have noticed a change in their, in their, in their perspective of a work-life balance. It, it's a lot more meaningful to people now, and I think more people are valuing their personal time. Even if it's time to just like sit down and have a coffee and read a book, those kinds of moments that I get in my in my you know, the very short hours of my day, if I have time to read a book or, or cook a wholesome meal, I really value those things. And I, I didn't always value them. They seem more like a chore, but now I, I actually like enjoy them. I really love everything you just said, Roxanne, and I completely agree. I think for me, I've always, even though I was born and raised in the West, I was born and raised in Australia, I've always felt very disconnected and almost like the black sheep of the community because my priorities have always been different like that. Like I, exactly like Roxanne said, in the West, you um, live to work rather than work to live, but I feel like I'm programmed differently. I feel... 
Because when you look back at our ancestry and the way that the Assyrian community has always been based, it's always been community-based. It's been helping each other. Hey, you don't have an egg, I'll give you one. That sort of mentality, which we're very, like, it's very hard to still have that, like, bubble within the West. And when you become assimilated, then it becomes a more individualistic society and people are worrying about material wealth instead, more so doing what they can to get to the top, get the highest position, get the highest salary. And I've just never related to that being a priority of mine. I'm very much a community-based person. I'm very much the sort of person I often, to my own hindrance, put people before myself. But what was really validating about coming back here is that there's all these people that have that mindset too. And that's a lot of the reason why a lot of people returned as well. Um, and it's really, really beautiful to see that sort of community still exist and it be our own people. The way that this journey changed me, I think it's, it is on my passion that is at the same time my studies and my work. So I realized that my work back home is just a mere contribution and here when i walked on the street when i visited people i just realized that my work here could have a real impact it is not just a contribution it can have an impact because there is a need i can see that now maybe i have like a purpose that my job has a purpose it's not just a contribution it can be it can have an impact and it is maybe the purpose of why and what and how and when I will come to Iraq. And Esther is an artist who has already left her footprint here. And from that, I can realize that, let's say from the perspective of art, I can realize that art has certain meanings beyond that. And those meanings, they can have impact. And through the art of Esther, I can see that there is a uh, an idea of reclaiming the identity. Let's switch things up a little bit. I want a different perspective now. Now we've talked about how this trip has changed you. Let's talk about how possibly it has impacted the homeland itself. Do you think that your visit has had an impact on locals here? Um, this is another thing that I actually brought up to the group earlier and I'm glad we're sharing it on the podcast. Is it, it Back in the West, especially in California, anytime somebody does anything nice for you, you're always thinking, okay, like, what are they looking for? Like, what are they expecting for me to return? And one thing I've noticed here is the people that we're meeting with are so genuine and friendly and welcoming, and they're always constantly doing things and and excited to see us and, you know, happy about it. I'm thinking, why are these people so happy and excited and, you know, warm to us? And they're just genuinely happy to see us. And that's it. And um, th- that took a while for me to um, to grasp because we're so used to people, you know, when people are being nice to you, they're obviously expecting something in return. And so I, th- I think when we when these people see us, we're actually bringing joy and hope and, um, and you know, like a sense of happiness to them that uh, is, is actually genuine and beautiful um, that we don't really see in, in, in the West. Um, but that was one thing that you know that I did notice, and it, was, it took a while for me to kind of really grasp and understand. Um, I think one of the ways I realized it actually has had an impact. I guess when you come here, you think about how the trip will change you, but you don't realize how on the other end, it's just it's been just as beautiful and enriching 
of an experience for our people in Aotearoa. Um, similarly, similarly to Delan, I've added a lot of people that I've met from here on social media. A lot of the schoolgirls added me on Snapchat and um, we started Snapchatting now, like we send each other voice recordings in Assyrian because maybe they only know how to write in Arabic, I can't read Arabic, so we found a way to communicate. But um, one of the girls, after we had visited the schools, it completely surprised me. Uh, her name's Mardina. After we met, she put the selfie her and I took on her story and she put as the caption, I was very happy to see you. I hope you'll visit the school again. I loved you so much with a laugh heart and a crying face. And that's just one small example of how our visit to the schools, just the schools, not even talking about the villages and the other people we interacted with all ages, but just the school kids, how much of an impact we made in their lives by visiting. And we might not even even realize how important it would be. Um, I just think that's so beautiful to know, like, just as much as they've touched our lives and our hearts, we've touched theirs. I would like to make a special request that Roxanne speak of her experience impacting the girls. Okay. Well, I was thinking, too, how can I answer this question? Because I can't speak on behalf of them. I don't, you know, I don't live here. I don't live their lives. But, um... Yeah, so Esther, <laughs> the story is basically that um, when we were at one of the schools, you know, I, I work, I, I work with kids. Um, I work with kids with special needs, and so I, I love kids so much. And I'm, it's natural for me to interact with them and have fun with them. It's like I don't even have to like really think about it. But I had so much fun at the schools, and I loved interacting with all the kids. And um, you know, obviously, like I. I'm a strong woman. I'm like a woman who like, you know, I, I'm very like you know, I'm a feminist and I'm like loud about it, whatever. But when I'm talking to these younger girls, I'm just, I, I see myself in some of them too. And I'm just like, I always want to empower girls and empower women. And so when I was there, I was just like, you know, trying to interact with them in so many ways. And one of the things that happened was I noticed, you know, I was, you know, I'm greeting them. I'm introducing myself, saying my name. I'm speaking Sudeth. And they're, sh they're shaking my hands and their handshakes are so like delicate and soft. And I'm just like, you know what? I'm like, I'm going to teach these girls a hard, firm handshake. So, <laughs> so I, I tell the girls, I start laughing and I'm like, I, you know, I shake their hand and I tell them, I'm like, look, when you shake someone's hand, I want you to shake it hard, like hold their hand and don't squeeze it, but squeeze it. And, and the girls were laughing and they didn't really understand. And I was, you know, I was kind of demonstrating for them and showing them myself and they loved it. And um, I just told them, I said, especially if a man shakes your hand, they might try to squeeze your hand, but you can squeeze it right back. Um, <laughs> I, I told them, I said, you know, it, this is a thing. This is a thing when you meet, when you meet people, I don't know why it's a thing, whatever. Um, but they loved it. And, and actually one of, one of the people on our trip uh, heard me talking about this and, and he comes and says, Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna test this out. So he goes and he and he introduces himself and he, he himself and he shakes their hands and he was like, wow, they all had very firm handshakes and, and they all, the girls loved it and they were like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna definitely do firm handshakes from now on. But um, who knows who knows if they will carry that on and who knows if they'll actually if they'll do it. But they were really into the idea and they thought it was awesome and they also, you know, they mentioned that you know the boys won't let us play basketball with them and I was like, just walk over there. Go over there and play. What are they going to do? And the girl said, nothing. So I was like, go play. And she actually went and go and played with them. So I don't know. Um, I think I think our impact can be anything as little as a handshake um, or even, you know, maybe a confidence boost. One of the girls, one of the girls, you know, I noticed a lot of them when we were around, you know, us women being around the, the younger girls, they would always 
comment on, on looks. Um, you're so pretty, your hair, your nails, your, you know, whatever. And I would tell them, you're so smart. Um, you're funny. I made sure to, I made sure to say those kinds of things because I feel like, you know, as a young girl, you know, when I was younger, I would always hear things about how I looked rather than how strong I was, how funny I was, how, you know, whatever I was. And so I, I, I like to like, I like to go out of my way to do those kinds of things. I love that. I, I also want to add to one of the things that I, I think could make a difference when we visit these people is, you know, they, they live here, they experience life every day and, and the struggles and all, all the good and bad things. And I sense that they see Americans visiting or, you know, Westerners in general, and they probably are a little amused at it because, you know, we, you know, America, you know what I mean? So they see us, they see us visiting the homeland and they are like, wow, they care. They're here to see us and they want to support us and they want to potentially visit again or come back and make a difference in the homeland. And I think it could give them a little bit of sense of hope. Absolutely. Definitely. So I remember that one of the young kids that I met in in the school that um, Salgun was men- mentioned, or maybe another one, I can't remember exactly, but the boy asked me, via Instagram, what is your narrative? Why did your parents leave Atra? And I share my experience. And the kid was not judging me. He wanted to, was not judging my parents. He, he was trying to understand what was the narrative behind. And here it shows that the locals also want, I mean, they recognize that Assyrians live also abroad and want to, con- to have contact with them. And I, was men- me- I mentioned before that multiple kids are calling me. And for me, from that, I can infer that those people want to have contact. Some of them are just random conversations. We just talk about their daily lives. But with some others, we had discussions about common interests. And we met someone yesterday at the, Diana. He was just, he was the photographer. And then I added him on Instagram and realized that he was an artist. And we just started to exchange. And I proposed him, you know, we can have discussion. We can, I can give you feedback and we can exchange around art. So for me, we have we have an impact. We had an impact on them, and they also made an impact on us. I think it's some. It's like a certain. It has a certain reciprocity where each of us benefit from something, and now it's up to us and up to them to just explore that and what kind of reciprocity it is. Maybe it is just by reconnecting to the a common identity, or maybe just by sharing, let's say, a knowledge, or maybe just by sharing some time. Even just sharing on social media. Mm-hmm. And, and continuing that connection. Why do you think it's important to continue that connection? Well, I guess Gishto is the bridge between diaspora and the homeland, and we're continuing that bridge, really. Yeah, and what better of a connection to have than with people? You know, it's the land is not always going to be accessible to us, and so if we can connect with the people, I feel like that's it's just such an easy, convenient, and meaningful way to stay in touch with like that connection that we've made on this trip. Have there been times where you thought, you know what, if there's one thing I'd like to change about the homeland, it's... Uh, Women's rights. Definitely women's rights. I think that's one of the only things I guess you could say is more so negative. I'm a 
very independent woman and I like to do things on my own a lot. I even like walking around on my own and that's something like we haven't really had the opportunity to do. I know that people do do it, but it's not always necessarily the safest option. Um, and just like exactly what Roxanne was saying before, like I love that you did that with the schoolgirls. It's so important to plant that seed and empower them and realize that women are more than just their physical appearance. So I think that... Um, the rights of women empowering women and i know there's organizations based here that do do that work and i think it's beautiful um and so important uh but definitely empowering young girls and women to realize their full potential so in response to the questions what could be changed here mm-hmm. for me it's neutrality to consider everyone as an as an individual and not look and not looking at their identity their religion or whatever so basically you're saying right now they are discriminated against based on their ethnicity. What you'd like to see is more neutrality? Yes, I think it's in that way. You know, we we have experienced like continuously the situations when we're crossing the checkpoints. They could see that we had like a, a cross, a rosary, and they were asking us, Who are you? You know, what are where are you going? And the drive, the bus driver was just answering, we are Christians. Okay, go ahead. So for me here, there is, there is a lack of neutrality. All, everyone should be considered the same and not, we should not use any names, any identity or religious group as an excuse or as a strength. So for me, if something could be changed here, it just is to consider everyone as an equal citizen. For me, hearing the Assyrian youth uh, that are are highly educated, hearing their their frustration with being unable to secure, uh, you know, career opportunities that are tied to their fields of study saddens me, and that I mean I I believe it would affect all Iraqis regardless of their background, but specifically as as Assyrians are uh, still a minority. I wish there was a way that uh, job opportunities could be made more accessible to them. I just wonder, are there opportunities, you know, for for the Assyrians in the diaspora through organizations to be able to empower them somehow or, you know, offer them some sort of um, either, not, not so much a scholarship, but I mean an opportunity for, I think the term is internship, like an internship. Yeah, if an internship or something like that could could be uh, offered, that would be not only enriching for them, but it's excellent for their CV, for their uh, resume, if you will. Um, but I, that's not my area. It's not my. I don't work in that industry, if you will. And so I, I, I just uh, put that out there for for others who are listening to this podcast. I just want to add to that. That's that. That is like such a big big thing because a lot of the reasons I've heard of why people want to leave here is because they want to make a living in their field or do a job that they that they aspire for. So earlier someone mentioned there was a student that had um, went to dentistry school, but they can't even practice. They have to go teach at a school or, or you know, work some, some other kind of job that's not related to that. And it's amazing to have that education and, you know, get through that, all that schooling and then they can't even use it. Um, and so if they had the opportunities to work and do those jobs here, they would stick around. 
yeah. not have to leave and go to the States or go to school in the States. What, what can be inferred from what has been just said is maybe equity. I was mentioning before equality, but equity is as much as important as equality because here we could observe that there was a certain lack of opportunities for Assyrians because they were living in, rural, in remote locations or because... Because they are female. Yeah. Or because, yeah, they, they don't have access to the same job opportunities as others. Or because they are just discriminated based on their identity or their religion. And here, if we look at equity, Assyrians could be could receive certain help in proportional to to their to their weight. You know, this morning someone was talking about the, the seat positions at the parliament. That the Syrians have only five seats, and that those five seats are not even being um, occupied by Assyrians who identify themselves as Assyrians and not as other as another identity. So here for me there is a, a lack of equity because those five seats, for instance, they might not they might be proportional to the um, to the to the Assyrian population compared to the Arab and Kurd and others minorities, but at the end this proportionality is not doesn't sound less with equity. I don't want to say with equity because they do not have the same balance and they might like five seats out of I don't know many hundred seats for the other ethnicities. They don't have, they don't have a balance. They don't wait enough to have a voice. Mm-hmm. I also want to add um, more respect towards our ancient and very valuable pieces of land. So much trash. I've never seen so much trash on, on areas that, that we are visiting. We went and visited Semele and there was trash everywhere. And that place is locked up, so I don't even understand how that happened. So now that we've talked about the things that you kind of want to see changed here in the homeland, what do you think are some of those struggles or limitations witnessed here or, or experienced here that might be a hindrance to these changes that you're expressing? Um, I don't know if like the locals are allowed to speak up about this, so I'm going to say it. Um, and, uh, if you need to cut it out, you can cut it out. But there's obviously a conflict between the Kurdish government and the Iraqi central government here. And the Assyrians and a lot of the indigenous people are trapped right in the middle of it. And so that is a huge hindrance on our people because you see it in the books. You see it in the lessons. You see it in the regulations and restrictions that you know, our people, the Assyrians, aren't allowed to learn certain things or are forced to learn certain things or um, they're, they're forced to... Um, adopt a certain part of their culture that wouldn't necessarily exist had there not been this whole, you know, this Kurdish Arab conflict that's happening here. You really don't understand. I mean, I've heard of it, but you don't really understand it until you're actually here. And so maybe it's not, I don't know if it's intentional or it's not, uh, but it's definitely happening. And it's, you know, it's very, it's very evident. It's like a, a giant elephant in the room. From what I understand, you're not even allowed to talk about it, but you know, I will. Um, but that, that definitely is a hindrance in our people. I think it's important to use our voices about these things. I mean, you're an attorney from California, and you have that 
you have that privilege to be able to see these things and speak for our people. And I think that's really important. And I guess we all do have that privilege being like um, citizens of other countries. We have that like, we have that luxury where if we speak out, we have somewhere we can go back to, you know what I'm trying to say? Um, so when we have we, we when we come from that place of privilege, I do believe it really is our duty to advocate for our people at the least. Alan, you touched about education a little bit. Can I get more of your thoughts about education here in this country? I'll give you a small example, and honestly, I haven't verified, I'm trying to verify, I don't know if it's true or not, but I'll give you one very specific small example that really blew my mind. So from what I understand is in our own history books, and because there's public schools that are fully Australian, so all the students are Australian, they, they learn, um, they get their education in Australian, granted they also learn you know, Arabic and Kurdish, which I think is important for this country, but all of their materials in Australian including their history lessons. And so for me, I'm huge on history. So I'm always listening to history podcasts and learning about like World War One and, you know, two and, you know, our ancient history and not even only a certain history, but all other cultures and civilizations that played roles in the entire world. And so for me, you know, I love learning about it. And, and what I learned is that a lot of time history is written by the victor. And so um, so you'll get different perspectives of it, but the overwhelming history that you'll get um, is, is written by the victor and so um, going to our histories one one of the one of our martyrs that we learned about is about Marshman about how he was you know killed by Simkun basically he was ambushed he was tricked into an ambush and so and again I don't know if this is true or not but from what I understand is there in the Kurdish culture Simku is is looked at as a national hero and so they write about him in their history lessons as if he's a national hero and then they they force these Assyrian schools to teach it in their Assyrian lessons. And so for me, it's almost a, a form of forced cannibalism where this character in history was was actually, I think, an antagonist, and I think, a, frankly, an evil person that is being forced to be learned by our people or the victims of these people as a hero. And so that's just one small example of it. Um, that I don't know if we're allowed to talk about these things, but I when you know, when I learned about it, I, it just blew my mind that that's, that's what we're being forced to learn about. Alan's point is, is relevant and appropriate. History is important, but it needs to be conveyed accurately without bias. And the bias is, yes, Simcoe may have been a proud Kurdish historical person that achieved certain things for Kurdish nationalism. However, he also, uh, you know, did things that uh, set our nation in, in, in a direction uh, with more challenges. He uh, was dishonest with his, with his supposed meeting with Marshamon and ambushed him, I believe, which is the word that Alan used, and was deceitful. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure that when that is taught in schools in, in Iraq, that any criticisms of Simcoe are not conveyed, and that's, that's biased. History should not be presented in that way, and those that do present it need to be open to feedback and criticism. Otherwise, it's no different than when the former regime of Iraq presented history 
uh, that was uh, that was shown uh, uh, with extreme uh, bias. And even setting aside the Assyrian perspective or the Kurdish perspective, looking at it just from a human perspective, why are we celebrating this figure who committed atrocious human rights violations? Like objectively as people, we should recognize there's something wrong with putting someone like that in a positive light. Regardless of what their accomplishments were. So for example, right now in the United States, there's a movement with you know Christopher, Christopher Columbus. And originally he was celebrated but then now, you know, when you really look into this history and see what he actually did to North America, people are changing their opinion about him. And a lot of the this reversionist history is, is coming to light and getting a new perspective of some of these figures in uh, history that are not heroes. They did some, some positive, but they also did a lot of, you know, bad. And, and a lot of their intentions um, were, were bad, even though they had um, positive outcomes, whether those outcomes were intentional or not. So you visited a bunch of schools here, if I'm not mistaken. What were some of the things that you observed that surprised you at the schools that you, you visited? Um, I'm seeing this as a as a an American that went to a middle class public school where I had access to. I mean, I graduated high school in 2010, and when I was in high school, we had IMAX. Like, I got to sit and work at a an Apple computer. Um, these schools had, they looked like they hadn't been touched up in decades. They had, you know, whiteboards that were crooked on the wall. You know, they needed to be probably adjusted. Very little maintenance done. Um, old desks. They didn't have very many writing utensils. I walked into a class where they were using this like electric, like radiator of some kind to heat up the classroom. It's just, you know, these kinds of things that we might not think about because we're not, we don't see them. But when I look at it, I'm like, you know, these kids are coming to school for, you know, how many hours a day, six, seven hours a day. And they're sitting in these rooms and they have, they, they're so happy to be there. You know, they're very, they're very well mannered. They, they listen, they, they're so smart and they're very educated. They know like three different languages and they have, very little resources compared to what I had. Um, and I remember I remember seeing um, one of the classrooms had, you know, they had like wires exposed on the walls, just things that you don't see, you don't see every day. And it's just really sad. These kids deserve better. I don't know who runs the schools. I don't know who like funds all of these things, but it's just all, all the things in the country, they start with kids, you know, the kids are the future. And if they don't have they have, I'm sure they're, you know, they're very smart, so they have the access to a good education, but that doesn't mean that they should be in a school where they're, the, you know, one of the sinks in the schools didn't work for me. I was, like, struggling to turn the sink on, and I figured it out, but I don't know. Just these little things that I notice, and I, and I think to myself, wow, I was so privileged to go to school where I went, you know? And, and I look at these kids, and I just think they deserve so much better. So to answer your question, the schools are basically completely run off donations to the Assyrian Aid Society, um, which shouldn't really be the case anyway. If I don't know if I'm allowed to be saying this, but if we if it was in a society that was equal, like we had equity, like we were mentioning before, and all that, these are things that the government should be funding, not a humanitarian as in a Syrian humanitarian organization. Exactly. Um, so that's like the issue in itself for starters, which is insane when you think about it. Even to the extent that textbooks are printed in America 
not here, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe they're printed by the aid society and supplied to the schools or maybe printed here, but the government doesn't even supply the books. So actually, so the books are actually written in Kurdish. The, the books are Kurdish. Yeah. Somebody here translates them, and then they're responsible for printing the Assyrian version. But even that shouldn't be the case when you really think about it. Um, so I guess that this is my message for the diaspora. These kind of changes, like the these more like systematically like institutional changes and all that, will take more time. But I think the really important thing is actually um, supporting the work that the Assyrian Aid Society does, and us from the diaspora if we have anything to give to give funding towards these projects because that's actually what's keeping these schools going without donations to Assyrian Aid Society we won't have these kids reading and writing and learning everything in our own language and I think that's so crucial to um, our community here yes uh, the the infrastructure in the schools uh, reminded me of the two times I visited Cuba it's uh, it's dilapidated uh i saw um you know uh, there were desks with the chair connected to it that i sat on and and the desk that the the uh, um you know the board that you rest your hands on and you write was not uh attached properly so it kept moving and i saw unicef signs etc but i've seen money that goes to unicef and i and i've seen schools that are supported by unicef and it didn't look like that at all. It was like an afterthought. And however, the positive I saw was the passion that the teachers had. These teachers were, especially one particular gentleman, he was like a firecracker. He was going at it with like teaching algebra and, and in Assyrian. And I was sitting there and I'm like, I don't even know where to begin. Like I would be completely lost. And the textbooks, the particular page that I open, and I have a picture of it, in English it says something like uh, uh, linear angles of the third unknown or something like that. And it's all in a seer, and I thought to myself, I don't even know how to say that. I can take the time to read it and learn it, like I learned the word for identity, heyayuta, but it's going to take me some time. Because this vocabulary is not vocabulary that I grew up with at home with my parents. Because I don't think even my parents, may they rest in peace, knew knew this vocabulary because it, it wasn't what they were taught growing up in Iraq. Uh, so the passion for the teachers really was, it, it gave me hope. Um, but to add on to or to, to strengthen what Steph was saying, the Assyrian Aid Society, it's their schools. And they are the organizations that fund them, that channel the resources there. So please, there are chapters of Assyrian Aid Society in various diaspora nations across the world, such as the one in Canada where I'm from, and they hold a variety of events. I can speak to the picnics in the summer in Toronto, where that money goes to these schools. And I knew that. But now that I visited the schools, I can see that it's authentically being received and how it manifests. It's real. Thank you. So I want to ask you, do you have a message to the youth here? Esther, do you have a message to the youth here? Be artists. Yes. <laughs> They're my heroes. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. I can say something. Um, I remember the last school we visited, I think it was in Semele, and I remember just watching them play. 
Well, actually, when we first got there, they were having a picnic, and I was obsessed because it was just so cute. They all worked together. They were probably between the ages of, I don't know, 7 and 11 or something, and they all just worked together. They laid out all this food, and they all sat down and nicely ate, and I was just like, oh, it's so... I don't know. It was just so cute. Um, and I saw them, you know, playing playing at recess and interacting with others. And I just was, I remember for a second, I just was observing and I thought to myself, they're so happy. They're so just like happy to be here. They're happy to be interacting with us. And I was thinking about the fact that because our population here has gotten smaller and smaller, these kids are here and they're the future of this place. And it, it kind of gave me a little bit of hope. I know that sounds a little cheesy, but I really, I really did feel that way. It felt like looking at them, I was like, they're the future of, of this, of, of our nation, basically. So what's your message to the future of our nation? They're my heroes. My, my message is that when I go back home, I will show my daughters the videos and the pictures and the collages that, that I've collected. I will show my children that, and I will tell them that they have brothers and sisters in, in Atra and that uh, we will be sending money, whether you want it, uh, to call it adopt an Assyrian school student or whatever it is, but that will be my goal for my children, that money, they, they have to put money aside and send it here so that their brothers and sisters that are comparable to their age group know that they have support. And then, uh, so my message for our youth here is that I really want them to understand how important they are to the survival of our nation because us back at home, you know, we're all very involved. We really care, but who's to say our kids will? You know, we are slowly dissolving diaspora, but the ones that live here are so important because they're the ones that are preserving our culture, our language, our traditions. And it's very important to know how important they are to the survival of our nation and, and how much we appreciate them. What I can say to those people, if they're in front of me, is that they're here, they exist, and they're meaningful. So what would be your message to your fellow Assyrians back in diaspora then? Come and visit Atra. Come and see um, Atra al-Ahatan. Come and see our land and come and see our people that are still here today. And I absolutely echo that. that I think anybody that claims to be an Assyrian should absolutely come and you know visit the home of their ancestors and see because you I've heard about it all the time, and, it, and in our minds, it becomes some kind of facade, you know, and you, you don't really realize that, you know, this is something real. I mean, it doesn't feel like we're in a foreign country right now, you know, at this moment, and um, and you really don't understand how, how it feels to be in your ancestral homeland until you're actually here. Connect to people, connect to others, and by connecting to others, you can achieve your sense of belonging, whether to the community or to your self-identity. And someone was mentioning that Assyrians do not have a land. But Assyrians living in a diaspora, they're like a non-contextual identity, you know? Someone was saying that they're testless. I think it was you, Esther. And I was, I couldn't accept this word. What was the word, sorry? Stateless. Stateless. And I was saying that Assyrians are a non-contextual nation. They do not have a land having the name of their nations, but they do have they do have an identity and they do have like a presence and people can share that. And by connecting with other Assyrians, as we just did know, whether it is only between people from the diaspora or with people, local people, we can still keep alive the Assyrian identity. 
I'd like to add on to what Dylan just said because I actually always used to say we don't have a country we're stateless and I was it was a post I saw on social media recently that was very humbling for me and opened my eyes um, to rephrase the way that I talk about it it's not that we don't have a country we do have a country we don't have sovereignty over our own country so this is our country aho aho thanks so much maximum respect and I want to say that I have the maximum respect for each and every one of you for coming back to visit whether you had direct links to this land or indirect links to this land it does mean a lot to us even as returnees to have you come for me it was a reminder of why I had come back so I thank you each and every one of you for that reminder and I do hope to see you again soon what did uh, what does Stephanie say peace, peace in the Middle East, East. <laughs> <laughs>